0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your
1: ears, folks.
0: It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth.
1: Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. ค่อยว่าจะไป
0: I'm <irgendwelche> going to go to the hospital. you to I'm going to go to the house. I'm going to go the
1: the i i the
0: Hey, folks, welcome
1: to a special episode of the projection booth. On this episode, I'm talking with Maddie Doe all about her film, The Long Walk, but even more than that, a little bit more about her fascinating career. I hope you enjoy this interview. I definitely had a lot of fun talking with Maddie. Hope to have her back on the show one of these days. Definitely check out The Long Walk as well as her other works and enjoy the interview. I am so curious about you and how you became a filmmaker.
0: I had no interest in film at all before I became a filmmaker. And it was just one of those things where, like, I hadn't even really watched many films except for the obvious ones, like the the big box office hits, the summer hits, right, Independence Day, et cetera, because I was um, training to be a ballet teacher. And when you're in a ballet conservatory, there's just not a lot of time to do very much else. Do you know. you know what I mean? Um, you spend most of your time dancing. And if you're like me and you're trying to also be a ballet teacher, you also spend your uh, extra time teaching or assistant teaching when you're not doing any of those things and you're playing with your dog or you're going out to dinner with your, at that time, my fiance, now my husband, or you're just like um, lying on the couch with your feet in a bucket of ice. <laughs> so <laughs> Um, it was really just happenstance. My husband has always been in film, kind of I mean he graduated from his university as a political science major because he thought film might not be a viable career. He thought it might not be realistic, but he loves screenwriting, he's written plays he he's just always been attached to film writing since he was a child. And then um, when he graduated from university with his degree in political science, he ended up writing film anyway. So he started working for the National Film School of Italy, and then he started doing copy edits and polishing for other people. It was just his thing. It was like he loved film, whatever, and he was happy. And at least he was doing fine as a new screenwriter. But we came to Lao to be with my father because I thought my father was uh, getting into trouble after my mother passed away. And my whole family interventioned, you know, they're just like, we need someone to go check, like check on dad, dad's going nuts (laughs) in lab. And my older brother has a real job. You know, he works for the government. My little brother also had a real job. He was in the military. And so they looked at us two artists. They're like, okay, ballet dancer and like writer or whatever, go check on dad. (laughs) And when we went to Laos, it turned out dad was not going crazy. I mean, he has his, you know, he's dad. He was fine. And my husband started noticing that there was like no cinema happening in Laos, really. There was like one other young group making a feature film for the guy's thesis. And there were some older films from like early 2000s, late 90s. But there was no activity. And so we traced down this old production company and we asked, my husband wanted to ask them and I was translating what happened. Like what happened to Laos cinema? Why is there no film? And the producers who are now my producers were just like, Oh, we're tired. Like we're tired. It's hard to make film. It's difficult. We don't have the creative uh, stories to make films anymore. Cause you know, I don't want to talk about it like it's a product, but like you do need content and um My husband was like, well, I can help you with that. I'm a writer. Like, we can make stories. And they were so excited. They're just like, yeah, dude, that's what we need. We need someone to make stories with us. Because we're older now. We're tired. We can't do it. And they're like, and you can direct it. And my husband's like, no. Like, you have, like, completely the wrong idea. I'm a writer. These writer types get chained in a dark room in a cave with, like, a keyboard. And they don't interact. With the camera people and the actors. And I don't speak Lao, he said. And everybody just got really disappointed in the room. They're just like, what the fuck? Like, we have a script and no one to direct it. And then he got really panicky and he thought that he wasn't going to get to write an original script. And so he panicked and he was like, well, what about my wife? She has years of performing arts experience. Years. And, you know, um, she speaks Lao. She is Lao. And everybody's like, oh, my God. Lao has never had a female film director. Like, this is amazing. And then I became a film director. (laughs) Wow. It was a sharp learning curve, Mike. (laughs) Yeah.
1: How do you feel about being volunteered into changing careers?
0: I mean, it's a little weird because uh, being both Lao and American, there's a weird cultural thing where here we are, to younger people, I mean, we weren't that young. We were in our 30s, but we were younger than the producers and we were standing in their office in their company. You don't just disrespect them by being like, uh-uh, hell no, I don't direct. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You can't just do it because they will lose face. You have to show a shred of respect, right? And so I kind of like nodded and went along. Like, I think it was just so shocking that my husband would even suggest that. When I had no knowledge on film, I'd never been to film school before that I didn't really know how to react. And then they were like popping open this bottle of whiskey and like (laughs) pouring it (laughs) out of celebration. And before you knew it, I was probably a little too drunk to really make, you know, I knew if I was going to make a scene, it was going to be a bad one if I was drunk. So then when we got home, it was a scene. Then the American in me came out and I was. Like just screaming at my husband, probably. I was just like, "What is going on? Like, are you freaking insane? How could you do that? Like, how, what? Like, what mental gymnastics connected? She speaks loud, and she can direct a film, and he did it, Mike. He connected it. He was like, Maddie, if you can make a seven-year-old dance a five-minute routine uncut on the stage in one take, you can do this. You can do this whole directing actors thing." Because you can have multiple takes. And in a way, right, like ballet in a lot of ways is um, more difficult than film. (laughs) So here we are.
1: So you had never done a short. You had never picked up a camera before. I mean, that's
0: wild. I'd been on a set before because when we were living in Italy, when he had just finished his university. And like I said, he had started working for that school and the National Film School of Italy. I was poor Mike like I was borderline starving and we lived in like the shittiest apartment you could ever see and ballet clothes are not cheap like one pair of point shoes back then cost us 65 euro now they're probably like 80 euro more so I needed money and one of the easiest ways to make cash for me was to work on a film set doing hair and makeup because I also have my cosmetology license from before. That worked out really well because then I was around film and I didn't understand what was happening, but at least I kind of understood, like, you know, the process of them doing things and changing scenery and et cetera. It was a lot like ballet, except that it wasn't in consecutive order. And there's a lot of repetition. Because in ballet, once you're on stage, you do it from beginning to end, then, like, you either do it or you die.
1: (laughs) But you know the whole rehearsal process.
0: Well, that is different because a rehearsal process for film. You, uh, there is a rehearsal process, but it's not like ballet. And ballet will be working like months in the lead up to be able to do it. And so that's different too. I get like almost no time to have rehearsal with actors.
1: <laughs> well, what was that first experience like when you you're putting all of this together and then actually have to get to the set and do it?
0: I have to admit that I miss it. It was fun. It never felt uncomfortable or intimidating because I didn't really know what I was doing. And in a lot of ways, not knowing that you should be intimidated and that you should, that you are doing something daunting helps a lot. I I'll always bring it back to dance because it's the only analogy I can think of. It's kind of like in ballet when you first come, if you've never fallen before, you're not afraid to try a certain movement. So like there are certain difficult skills that we might learn a turn or a jump. And, you know, when you're a fearless child and you walk into the room and you see the big girls doing it, you're like, yeah, I can do that. I can totally do that. And you try and maybe you get lucky a couple of times and you're like, damn, that's fun. And then you fall and hit your face for the first time. And suddenly it's hard. Then suddenly it's not fun anymore. And so for my first film, like it was something that I didn't understand was supposed to be difficult and that I didn't understand was daunting. So it was fun. Now I've like hit my face a few times. And now I understand the gravity of it, I think. So I missed those days when I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Because <laughs> like back then, my husband's theory was, this is what he pitched to Low Art Media. This will be a practice. Like we're, we're going to try and make this feature film. And it was in my own house. So that was already comfortable, sort of don't make a film in your house because it sucks when you have to go get a glass of water or go to the bathroom at night and you're tripping over your own cables or the lights that are still set up (laughs) and all the dishes of all the crew are still in the sink, you know, but it's your house. Then it's our friends. Like our crew was five of our friends, my dog. And then we had like five actors. So it was like super fun. If we messed up, we just did it again. Or if the schedule didn't work out, we just rescheduled it. But that's not the kind of film I'm doing anymore. And so now it is kind of a different ball game. Like everybody's stressed and everybody, if it doesn't work out, it's like everybody's breathing down your back now. And so it's a little different. The, the amount of money is a lot higher than $4,500 now.
1: <laughs> is it just the money or did other things change as well to put this added pressure on you?
0: Besides the money, because of course it's not my money. So if I lose it, then that's bad. (laughs) It's not a good thing. Um, But also, as a crew gets bigger, they're also coming from different places. So now my crew uh, comes from our local crew, which is here in Laos. Uh, Then there are people from Thailand, from France, from Singapore, from Spain, from America, you have six different countries, all here in a place they consider foreign. And, you know, I have to kind of make sure that everything goes okay. And then we only have their, they have round-trip tickets. So we have to finish everything within an allotted amount of time because, you know, they've got tickets to go home and our hotels are only for a certain amount of time. (laughs) So there's a lot of different pressure and getting uh, all these different factors to become cohesive is extremely stressful. (laughs) And before it was just a bunch of us friends fucking around here, right? (laughs)
1: You did something really unusual when it came to financing your second feature, Dear Sister. What was it? You had a goal to get to, what was it, $30,000? And if you hit that, then you would put your first film in the public domain?
0: And it is in the public domain right now. And it's on archive.org, actually. like Even the footage of that is not usable, is on archive.org. The only issue... And I've had people re-edit part of the film before and send me their edits which is a goal is if you're a student or someone who wants to get into film, but can't get into film school or doesn't have access, there you go. Like you can practice with my film and one student or one, I don't know if it was a student, one person uh, sent me an edit without ghosts and another one sent me a silent film sort of edit, which was awesome because like the footage that uh, is not in the film Of course, everyone's speaking Lao language, so they probably don't understand what's happening. And so they made like a silent film and it was really cool, but it's not for profit. The exclusive goal is like, yes, um, it's in the public domain. You can show it, you can use it, you can play with it, but um, you're not meant to profit off of it. And already there have been a few people who've tried to like do showings and get ticket prices without, you know, like if you want to charge something for it, then... Please contact someone in our group, like contact myself or my um, husband. It's just wrong to do that to something that's free. Do you know what I mean?
1: You said that you were a big summer blockbuster person. Were you a big horror person as well? Or is that all coming from your husband?
0: It's actually both of us. Horror was kind of the blockbuster of the 80s, right? Like everybody in the 80s was exposed to horror, whether they liked it or not. And when I was a little child, that was like, the shelf that dominated all the attention in the VHS rental stores, it was like Freddy Krueger, it was um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was Halloween. I was so young when I saw some of these movies, and most of them were so terrifying that I was probably watching like from behind my hands with closed eyes. I can't remember the majority of them, but they made an impact. And I think that that impact was positive because what I grew up realizing was that horror... Is accessible. Horror is something that it doesn't matter what country you're from. Uh, you know how to be scared. But for myself, what was most important about horror is that accessibility and the acceptance level. Horror fans will watch a film in any language, Mike. Like, seriously. They'll watch a film in Tamil, from South Asia, and from India. Um, they'll watch an African horror film. Um, they'll watch a Mongolian one. They don't need for it to be in English, but when you make a regular film and it's not in English, it's like you've suddenly lost this huge three continents of viewers for some reason. Like you've lost all these viewers because I don't know, they just don't know how to fucking read or something. (laughs) Like, Like they forgot how to read subtitles, but yet horror fans all over the world will watch a film from anywhere in the world. And I don't know why that is. And I love it. It's something that I really thought about when I made horror. You know, I just like to be scared. I like the thrill of it, um, even though I'm really (laughs) chicken. Like, I'm the one who's, like, spilling the popcorn in the the cinema. I really am freaking out.
1: (laughs) So what's that like for you, the first time you actually get to see a movie that you've made in a theater with an audience?
0: It's stressful. Unlike most filmmakers, I watch my film every time. I'm there with an audience because most filmmakers will go in, they'll do the introduction and then they don't watch their own film with the audience. Then uh, they come back at the end and do a discussion, right? A Q and a, I always watch it with my audience because every viewing is different with every audience. And you really feel, you really feel, I'm not trying to sound esoteric at all by any means, but you really feel this energy from the audience. And sometimes it's negative. Like I've definitely been in an audience that did not like my films before. <laughs> And the most odd thing, talking about this energy, right, the the strangest energy experience I've ever had in an audience was in Cambodia. It was February, right before the pandemic broke, you know, right before the virus spread all over the world. And at that time in February, almost March, actually, I can't remember the exact date. America wasn't aware that there was a virus yet. Like, they heard about it, but they thought it was, like, the Asians, right? And I was sitting in uh, the cinema in Phnom Penh. No, in Siem Reap. I was in Siam Reap. And the mother character just started coughing because, you know, as you know, she has tuberculosis. And then the other people started sympathy coughing. And all of a sudden, like, so many people were sympathy coughing in the audience. And it was just, like, in Asia, like, the pandemic was our... Like COVID was already becoming quite real for us in Asia, because we saw the lockdown in Wuhan, and then we saw the South Korean thing, right? And then I was like sympathy coughing, I was like, <coughs> and like it was the most awkward feeling in the audience, and this energy was, just, in retrospect, hilarious, but it was so weird and strange back then. I got home the, uh, that week because I was only there for about a week. I got home that week and that is exactly when the lockdowns happened and all the countries shut down flights. I could have been stuck. Seriously. Like I could have gotten stuck in Cambodia if I was even like a few days later and the lockdowns happened and they canceled all the flights and everything. And I was like, Holy shit. Like we are in the cinema watching this scene where the mother dies of tuberculosis and everyone's like having these like suppressed coughs because they're all trying to act like they're not coughing. <laughs> And so that was the weirdest audience experience I've ever had, watching my own film.
1: (laughs) So you've been making movies since at least 2012 now. And I'm curious, how has the Laos film industry changed or has it? I mean, is it just you? Are you still the the lone wolf out there? Or do you now have other people making movies?
0: Oh, I don't think I've ever been the lone wolf. Because even when in 2010, when I first came to Laos, uh, like I said, there was the other film group that was making their thesis film. And they've gone on to make quite a few local films as well. And they've also like helped to like facilitate other foreign productions too. And then there have been some other young people who've tried to make like uh, romantic comedies. And actually rom-com is a big thing here. They really like the rom-coms, uh, melodramatic ones, like soap opera style. And they've, there have been some that uh, have made horror comedies as well because in southeast asia horror comedy is also really popular um but they're not a horror comedy like scream i've never seen anything quite like it in the u.s before it's like slapstick almost where like the ghost will be chasing you and suddenly the ghost will trip and they'll be like boing 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 like the noises you know (laughs) like that kind of thing i've never seen that in the west but that's popular here and um so i've never been the lone wolf in making film here but it's odd, Mike. Like I do feel with the pandemic, things have gotten a little quiet, of course. The most difficult thing in Lao, and what does make me the lone wolf, is that I've been able to get international distribution and audiences and recognition. And that's the most unique thing. And so far I'm still the only filmmaker that's doing that. And I think it's because I'm really thinking about telling stories that have a lot of reach that reach not just any one local region, but could be associative to anyone in any country. And that's kind of not the idea here yet. Like the idea here is to do something that's popular locally, which is great because we do need local stories, but teenagers having a melodramatic love story isn't always going to be like the most appealing thing outside of (laughs) wow.
1: Where did the idea for the long walk come from?
0: The long walk... Is actually a really complicated origin because the initial, 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 initial start of it, the original root of it is, it was actually a really big um, fuck you to art house films, you know, the fancy schmancy films that get all the, you know, the Criterion collection ones, <laughs> or the or the uh, the awards films, right, the ones that always win all the awards. You know, when you make a film like that from Asia, there's an expectation. The, and the idea is that it should be about suffering poor people who just have so little and need a white savior to come and help them. And, oh, my God, like, I've just watched everyone around me die because we're just so poor. But, you know, I'm toiling on, on this in this dirt road with just one shoe. And that's the expectation. Or the expectation should be, like, as an Asian all the characters need to be more mystical than regular white folk, right? Like they see the world in a different sphere. Like they can see the world through different lenses because they're mystic Asians or something like this. Like, I don't know, like they've got gongs in every room in their house and they meditate in every room in their house. Like, why? Like, why do we have to be so like unicorn-ish? We're humans too. And I thought, like, well, if these are the films that everybody wants, and these are the films that, like, I'm supposed to be making. Then, like, fuck that. Just I, I feel trapped, and I feel like, why is it that white people have to tell me what kind of film I should make in Asia, and why is it that it's only white people giving these awards, give making these festival selections? Like I'm going to make whatever the fuck kind of Asian film I want to make, especially from Laos, And it's going to be fine. You want poverty porn? Let me give you this rural man in the village. Let me give you him starving and like suffering out there, but it's going to be a time travel science fiction, serial killer ghost film. (laughs) And that's kind of how it started. I mean, I might not have been the most sober when I thought of that with my husband, but it happened. And actually, um, You know, I I make it sound like it happened overnight, this idea, but a lot of things got compounded and it became a super intimate and personal story on grief and loss and regret because during the process of writing this film, uh, my husband and I lost our dog, Mango, who was 17 years old. And when we lost him, you know, it really brought back the the memory of me losing my mother when I was in my early 20s or my mid-20s. and. It was, all jokes aside, it was one of the hardest periods of my life. And um, a lot of it worked into the script. And I think you see that.
1: (laughs) It's so moody and atmospheric. I mean, I get creeped out just watching the film. It's amazing how you're able to control the audience so well with what you're presenting. And it's the sound, it's the visuals, everything coming together to create the full package of just, it really keeps you on edge.
0: That's because my team is awesome. Like, I love my team. Every one of them. I have such a tiny crew. I think we're like less than 20 people on our crew, um, not including the actors. And I think that when you're a director, your job is, you would be surprised. I think that your job as a director is, one, to recognize a good performance on the monitor. So you have to be able to see when you're standing behind the camera with your DOP, If that's passable or not, are you going to be able to use that later? Imagine, Mike, every time you watch a movie, even a shitty film, like even the crappiest film you've ever, ever seen, what was on the screen is the best take that they had. You know, and you don't know how many takes they took, but that's the best one, and that's the one that they're using. So your job as a director is to at least recognize if it's okay or not. And two, this is something really important that I think that every filmmaker should think about, your job as a director is to gather the best people on your team, people who are better than you at every job. I can't be my own art director for every scene. I can't be my own DOP. I can barely lift the camera. It's a really heavy camera, especially with all the attachments. It's super heavy. I can't be holding the boom mic and recording the sound. My job as a director is to be the visionary helm, the, the leader of the ship, I'm the pilot but the team is a team of experts in their field you know so like I have to make sure that the cameraman is the best at what he does and that he and I can communicate effectively so he can take what I already want and make it better and uh, same with the composition the music was fantastic I'm not going to go in that room and play the cello for him (laughs) you know but I can tell him the sort of mood and the sort of atmosphere that I want. And he's going to come back and the two of us are going to listen to it and he's going to make it better by hearing my reaction and seeing my reaction to it. That's something that I think that a lot of directors have to understand that while it is our vision, it's our job to find people who can execute it better than us under our guidance. I think there's a lot of micromanaging that um, happens sometimes and it's hard to let go. But then when you get to that, like, it's just like a ballet, I'm telling you. When the, the corps of ballet is dancing with you and everyone's in sync, it's a glorious sight to behold.
1: Well, you talked about teaching ballet and how you could possibly apply that to actors. Do you find that you're working with actors like you were when you were a teacher?
0: 100%. I don't know much about how other people work with actors, actually. Um, And I've seen some other directors working with actors on their sets before, and it's nothing similar to how I work with them. One way that I do work with actors is very bad, actually, and I would not recommend it to anyone. (laughs) And it is 100 percent the way a ballet teacher works with their student. And that is to correct mid-performance. So all of my actors are used to that. They could be the camera could still be rolling. They could be in the middle of a performance performance. And uh, if they do something wrong, I'll just like correct them in the middle of the performance because the camera is still rolling. It's digital. We're not on film. You know, we can we can still work with that. And that's something that most professional actors would not tolerate at all. Um, But in ballet, that is very normal. While you're dancing, uh, you're in the middle of the choreography. The teacher is walking right next to you, weaving in and out of us as a group and giving us corrections on the spot just snapping at us like this or even touching us. And I do that too. I, I also like manually adjust my actors as well, as well. So that's very much from ballet. And I do know that when I start working with more uh, professional actors, I do need to stop that. <laughs> but rea- in reality, that's from ballet. And then secondly, I really dislike, and this I think is good if anyone wants to take like directing lessons. Don't take the first lesson, take this lesson. <laughs> I really don't like sitting in what they call the video village. What the video village is for your listeners who might not know is it's like an area that they set up with all the monitors. So the director just sits in the chair and watches what's happening on the TV or the monitor and they direct from their chair. I hate that. Like I can't do that in ballet. The, the director, um, the choreographer, they're there with you. Like I said, they're touching you. They're, they're right next to you sometimes they're like whispering in your ear telling you what to do what you're doing wrong and I I need that closeness to my actors and so in all my in all my films they don't first of all I don't even have a chair mic that's how like low-key our sets are there's no chair for me I'm sitting on the ground or on like a fucking plastic stool so I couldn't have a video village if I wanted one probably but what we do is we get me um they get me a portable monitor, like a Shogun. I hold it or it's attached to me and I can move anywhere on the set. So I'm usually next to the cameraman or right out of frame with the actors. Whenever we cut, I just speak very quietly to them. And we just discuss, for instance, like in this moment, I noticed that you had a little bit of hesitation and I really like that. But for the next take, can you give me that hesitation again? But I want to see your eyes make contact with them because you've made a decision and they don't understand that you've already come to a decision in your head. And this is exactly how I'll speak to an actor really face to face, really close intimately. And then I'll be like, okay, let's do that. Take again. And I'll just step back one step out of frame and we'll roll again. So that is how I work on set. And that's how I direct that is like ballet. And I think that that's something that more directors should do is have this close relationship with their actors like in ballet and in ballet we respect our artistic directors our choreographers so much like so much um, and I think it's because of that because you know they're hands-on working with you and that they care and I think that that distance of like shouting the a megaphone at your actors could like I don't know I feel like it could destroy that
1: <laughs> when did The Long Walk actually make its premiere
0: venice 2019 at the venice international film festival i'm utterly floored when i think about the fact that i was at venice and then at toronto and then at busan and then at tokyo i'm still shocked i'm still like how did i get here what am i doing like i'm such an imposter walking down these red carpets you know <laughs> it's just, i can't believe i'm doing this And so that was the premiere was at the venice film festival or uh What do Americans even call it? It's the the Biennale, like the the big festival, right? It's like the top three.
1: (laughs) What have you been up to since then? Because obviously the pandemic probably put the kibosh on a lot of your projects.
0: Yes and no, actually. For myself, I'm a homebody anyway. So when quarantine happened and there were lockdowns, I was just like, yay. (laughs) I I have like an excuse to stay home now with my dogs and with my cats. And I love to work from home anyway. So that's been really great. It's been difficult for Chris who likes to be out and working, but I actually have three films in development. I don't mind taking it a little bit slow to get to the next project. Now the the biggest thing isn't that my projects have been canceled or even delayed. My biggest thing, worry is how do we do it in a safe way and how do we do it in a cost-effective way? Because I don't know if you check pricing for um, international flights lately, but it's nuts since the pandemic. It is not normal. <laughs> so to be able to like do, because all, all of my films next are multi-country. So to be able to do a film where my production that goes from one country to the next country and that I have team from one country or another country, cost becomes a worry. <laughs> How
1: did the Creep Show episode come about for you?
0: Creep Show has been something... I believe Creepshow started when I was born, 81, I think, or maybe a year earlier. But so Chris and I, um, my husband and I, we grew up with it. I remember very clearly Creepshow episodes, because like I said, I grew up on more. Right? Um, I remember clearly some episodes from Creepshow back in the 80s. And when Shudder came out with Creepshow, like, we were huge fans. We loved it, but we never imagined or anticipated that we would get to be a part of the Creepshow family. And I call it a Creepshow family because there's a legacy behind it, right? Greg and Greg Nicotero and all these directors and even the people who worked on the very first one, Stephen King and et cetera. It's a legacy for us horror people. And it just happened one day. I can't even remember what happened, but I think it was Shudder contacted my manager and they were like, would Maddie and like would Maddie and Chris be interested in pitching for Creep Show, for one of the seasons of Creep Show? And we were like, hell yeah, we would. <laughs> we were just whatever you want, however, whenever, like, of course we would. And then all of a sudden I was emailing Greg. And I had a phone call, with Greg Nicotero. And it was just like, this is the strangest thing because, you know. I'd already been a fan of his show, The Walking Dead, as well. And he, he was just so nice and so kind. And we had to send him... We didn't even know how people normally pitch for these things, actually. And I didn't realize that most people are sending very complete stories to them. To me, that seems wrong. Like, that seems not like you're sending in complete stories because Greg is a showrunner. He's going to have to tell you how the story should fit his season, Right. And so we were sending in like one line pitches or like one or two, two line pitches. And it was really incomplete. But then I guess one of them, this one drug traffic, which you might've seen uh, really stuck out to him and he talked to us and he was just like, at the time, the monster was more of a traditional monster. It was like a Western monster werewolf or something. And he was like, you know, we're, I'm kind of looking to like break away from the classics a little bit because to be honest, like as much as we love him, it's been done. Right. And he was like, I mean, I'm looking for something a little bit different, but the idea is really cool, really funny. And so between um, ourselves and Greg, we decided, well, I'm Southeast Asian. What if I brought you a Southeast Asian monster? And it became incredible. He was so open to it, completely accepting and so happy. Um, If anything, I would say he championed it because when people don't recognize something or they're not familiar with it, I think maybe sometimes they're a little uncomfortable. Right. But not Greg. Greg was like all for it. He was like, I'm going to lean into that, like lean into your heritage, lean into your culture, Maddie. And so I brought the casu, this disembodied this, this, this floating head with all the entrails floating out or flowing out of it um, that eats other people's entrails. And it became this huge kind of ironic satire joke, right? Like, a Southeast Asian monster trying to cross the Canadian American border, but like legally. <laughs> it was very apt for the time and for this time as well. You know, it's quite perfect.
1: <laughs> Maddie, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a great time talking with you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm just like really happy that we got to talk. I was. You know, the time zone mix-up is a little weird for me. What time is it over there?
1: Uh, it is just coming on 8.45 a.m.
0: Okay, yeah. We've got, like, a whole day apart. <laughs> it's 8.45 p.m. in Laos.